0: Thankfulness, gratitude, appreciation, being beholden to, acknowledgement, giving of thanks. All of these synonyms are used to express that quality of heart and attitude which we call being thankful. In a hard world where human self-effort is praised and corporate responsibility is played down, people tend to be less thankful because they don't see that others have played a dominant role in their achievements. If they receive a promotion at work, they believe that they deserved it because, after all, they outdid everyone else vying for the same position. If they receive an honor from a civic organization, they believe that it was their leadership and their initiative which drew the attention of the officers of that organization and netted them the reward. So thankfulness is not necessarily at the forefront of people's thinking when talking about the good, the honorable, the financial success, the noble, that comes into their lives. Even less do we find thankfulness when it comes to the bad things which enter people's lives. No one is thankful when they lose their job. No one is thankful when they have a death in the family. No one is thankful when they fall into serious illness. No one is thankful when they have a wreck with their car. Or if they have kids who are rebellious and incorrigible. None of those things make people thankful. And yet at Christians, God's word comes to us and it tells us point blank. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances. Or Ephesians 5 verse 20. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did we read that right? All circumstances? Everything? That's pretty inclusive. Even the bad things which come into our lives have the hand of God upon them. And as believers we are honor bound to find the good in them. May I say to find God in them. Again, we read, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That's why. Do you know that trials develop steadfastness? Is perseverance something that is necessary in the Christian life? Do we not face many temptations From our world and from the evil one designed to cause us to renounce God and desert the faith. And in Jesus' own words, which he says in light of the many false Christs and false teachers destined to appear in the end days. He who stands firm to the end will be the one that's saved. Matthew 24 verse 13. In light of all this, it appears that perseverance is of paramount importance. Because people give up. So that being the case, if trials are what God uses to build backbone and fortitude into our spiritual resolve, then it becomes understandable why we should consider it pure joy when trials come our way. And there are many other scenarios which come to mind. A death in the family may be used of God as the wake-up call to those relatives and friends who keep putting off dealing with their own relationship with God. A car crash can mellow a mean-spirited and prideful man by showing him that he's not as invincible as he thinks he is. Losing a promotion at work may move a person into a new field of employment more fitted to his skills or to his liking. The possibilities are endless. You can think of many, many things. But to see these things, to see these things, requires a thankful heart. And sinful, prideful, egocentric, selfish people have difficulty being thankful Because they cannot see God in these things. Well, God has called us to face reality. He's called us to see ourselves and our world as it really is. He has called us to think hard and long upon the involvement of God in our lives. What he has done for us. What he continues to do for us. How he has intervened. How we have experienced the outpouring of his grace. In our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews helps us focus on some of those things by way of a contrast. What he does is he takes the reader through the use of history and memory back to the days of old when God worked with people in a different way. And then he compares back then with here and now. And this comparison is designed to create Thankfulness in us, in our day. The key verse, verse 28 of our text. Therefore, here's a conclusion. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So what I want to do with you this morning is to show you the comparison and to highlight the wonderful things God has done for believers in the present age. So your bulletin outline, we begin firstly with God's people of the past. It's hard for us to imagine the distance, the rules, the regulations, of the old covenant made upon the worshipers of God in the days of the Old Testament. I mean, we're so used to approaching God through prayer without an earthly priest, without an appropriate animal sacrifice, without ceremonial washings and rituals, any day, any night, any time. We're so used to that, that it's practically inconceivable that believers came to God in any other way. Added to this is the burden of overfamiliarity, wherein God has been so cheapened, so commercialized, so divested of his holiness, righteousness, and justice that it's practically impossible for people to be awestruck and reverent in his presence. People do not respect God. They do not honor God. They don't fear God. Because the God being presented through the mass media and in many pulpits is not worthy of respect and honor. He's simply a cheap imitation of the God of the Bible. A superman, but still a man. A God created by his followers and one who is manipulated at will to do their bidding. This in itself is a denial one of the main attributes of our God, which makes God what he is, and I'm talking about the attribute of being immutable, or the fact that he does not change in character. If God was holy and righteous and just in the Old Testament days, he's the same today. And if he has changed, if he is less than what he was, then he cannot be God For gods are in control, are they not, of their own being and their own future. This is not to say that God cannot manifest his character with a different emphasis, according to his own will. And so when we come to the old dispensation, we see an emphasis on what I'm going to call the transcendence of God. It's just a fancy word, the transcendence of God. That means that God is above his creation. Not one with us. Certainly not our buddy, not our pal. Not one we can come close to as though God were a little more than a deified human being. This is depicted in our text, verse 18 and following. But I want to take you to the original text. So if you'll turn your Bibles <coughs> to Exodus 19. We'll start our reading at verse 14. <coughs> Exodus 19, verse 14. And this has to do with the giving of God's word to the Israelites of old. It says, After Moses had gone up unto the mountain, now this is Mount Sinai, After Moses had gone down, down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, Prepare yourself for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, go down, bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is a terrifying scene, to say the least. Thunder, lightning, a thick cloud, fire, dense smoke, a violent earthquake, and a trumpet blast that begins at one volume and then builds to an earth-splitting crescendo. And then, dead silence, except for the voice of the Almighty. Very, very terrifying. Deuteronomy 5.22 says it was a loud voice. Even Moses was taken back. Our text says, verse 21, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. What was the message of this scene? The message was this: stay your distance. Stand clear. God is not one of you. God is above you. There's no free access. Unapproachable. Unapproachable. Beware. God is unapproachable. Be on your guard. Don't overstep the bounds. You may come only so far and no further. Watch your step. Watch your step. Even so, had we been Israelites under this theocracy wherein God ruled and now revealed himself on Mount Sinai, there would have been ample reason for being thankful. Ample reasons for being thankful. Why so? To no other nation did God reveal himself but to Israel. To no other nation did God give his law and instruction to sinners. Except Israel. To no other country did God preach salvation. And provide a way to be forgiven and reconciled to him. Except Israel. Paul describes their distinct blessings in Romans 9 verse 3 and following. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenants. The receiving of the law. The temple worship. The promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, may be forever praised. Amen. So even in the theocracy, Israel was blessed above all of the nations. I mean, compared to the pagan nations around them, Israel was greatly privileged and greatly blessed by God. They were treated in the most gracious of ways by God. The pathway of salvation was disclosed to them. Their priests and prophets ministered God's word to them. You know when God curses a nation? You know what he does? He sends a famine. It's a different kind of famine. Amos 8 verse 11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not, not, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Amos 8, verse 11. Only in its late history was Israel cursed by God in this way, and then only because of her rebellion and disobedience to God and the worship of idols. Now, where do you think America lies in all of this? Are we ripe for this kind of spiritual famine? Maybe so. Well, that's the people of God in the Old Testament. What about the people of God in the New Testament? Well, let me say that we've come to a mountain, too. We have. But not Mount Sinai with the fire and the smoke and verse 18 darkness, gloom, and storm, and disastrous, dangerous limits, and an earthquake, and blasting trumpets, and loud voice of God Almighty. But, verse 22 of our text, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And as the writer of Hebrews goes on, he describes and heightens the tremendous contrast between the physical appearance of God when he touched the Mount of Sinai with his presence, verse 18, but allowed no other to touch it, and the contrast to the spiritual mountain of Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem in which God actually lives. So what I want to do this morning is look at the particulars of this comparison. let's take a closer look at this wonderful destination, Mount Zion, which God has determined for us. Verse 22 of our text. The first thing is to note is this. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. Now we have learned of Sinai. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, the Israelites were told. In other words, as we've indicated, Sinai said, stay away, stay away. Mount Zion, on the other hand, says, come, come. This is ever the distinction between law and grace. The law of God does only what the law of God can do, and that's to condemn lawbreakers. And grace does only what grace can do, that is forgive and restore lawbreakers. The two are not the same. They each have their distinct work. The law cannot be gracious to those who break the commands. And grace cannot, because of mercy, cannot condemn lawbreakers. The point is, who would not choose grace? The answer is, people who do not see themselves as lawbreakers. People who do not have a thankful heart. Those are the ones That would not choose grace. Paul writes it this way. The law is made. Not for the righteous. But for the lawbreaker and rebels. The ungodly. The sinful. The unholy. The irreligious. For those who kill their fathers and mothers. For murderers. For adulterers and perverts. For slave traders and liars and perjurers. And people will say. Well I'm none of those things. And Paul goes on and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of our blessed God 1 Timothy 1 verse 9 and following the list of sins here is partial There's no way inclusive of all the wickedness which men do in violation of God's will yet with this list of rebel sins that we have here and all the other lists in the bible and here give some other Texts to look at on your own Romans 1, Romans 3, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5. They all have lists of sin and wickedness. Even with all those lists, you will still meet people on the street who believe that their final destination will be heaven because of their good deeds. Their good deeds. Jesus acknowledged these kind of people in his own day of ministry as well. He worded it this way. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5, verse 31. Isn't this ironic? The people who are self-righteous and do not see themselves in need of saving expect that they will be in heaven anyway. Whereas, Jesus taught that the calling into the kingdom consisted of people like the tax collectors and other cheats and sinners of the day. Context, he was talking about Levi, that is Matthew, to be his disciple, who acknowledged their sin and in faith and repentance turned to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. There's a world of difference between acknowledging one's sin and thinking that there's no sin to acknowledge. The people who are Jesus' very own are not the self-righteous who think that they are good enough in themselves to make it to Mount Zion, but rather those whose sins they were consciously aware of and for which they turned to Jesus alone for their help. And unless you come to this same kind of confession and repentance then your destination will not be Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Salvation is for sinners. Not those who think they are guiltless before the law of God. The second thing to observe here about Mount Zion is that it is a place of thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Verse 22, the latter part of the verse. Did you know that there were also angels present at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? There was. Moses says in Deuteronomy 3, verse 3, The Lord came from Sinai. He came with myriads. That's just a word that means innumerable. Myriads of holy ones. All the holy ones are in your hand. At your feet they all bow down and from you receive instruction. Psalm 103 says that the angels are God's servants who do his bidding, who obey his word, verse 20. Galatians 3, verse 19 says, The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Stephen explains in Acts 7, verse 38 of Moses, He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and he received living words to pass on to us. Acts 7, verse 38, and now also verses 53 and following in the same sermon. The difference between Sinai and Mount Zion seems to be the addition of the phrase angels in joyful assembly. Huh. There was nothing joyful about what occurred at Sinai, but instead terror and fear, verse 21 of our text. But in the New Covenant, Jesus tells us there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke 15, verse 10. Just one repentant sinner can set the heavenly host rejoicing. In fact, the writer of Hebrews told us earlier Are not all angels, ministering spirits, sent? To serve those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1 verse 14. It would seem that the angels in doing the bidding of God. Have some directing and leading and watch care role. Towards the elect of God to bring them to salvation. And when these people are saved there is great rejoicing. The theme of their joy. The subject of their rejoicing is God. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand they encircled the throne and in a loud voice they sang Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Revelation 5 verse 11 and following. The angels whose kind received no help from God concerning salvation went a large Constituency of their number rebelled with Satan, Hebrews 2.16, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Nonetheless, find in all inspiring to contemplate even one sinful creature who is reconciled to God, even if that one single creature is human, not angelic in nature. Peter tells us of the angels, they long to look into these things. 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Why doesn't who doesn't rather like a joyful assembly a joyful assembly a gathering people who are full of exultation and rejoicing and singing and dancing and praise well that's quite a contrast but that's what goes on on Mount Zion the heavenly Jerusalem the city of the living God it's a place of perpetual festivity and joy No gloom and doom here. No talk of condemnation. No judgment. No hell. No smoke. No fire. No earthquakes. And this is the destination of all who know Jesus Christ as Savior. We're destined to go to His house. His home. To live there with Him forever. It's a wonderful place to have as your retirement home. Thirdly, Mount Zion is the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, verse 23. When John talks about the heavenly streets of gold, the gates made out of pearls, the description of the city is a description of the people of God. The heavenly Jerusalem, synonym of Mount Zion, is not so much a place As it is a people. John says. I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. prepared what? As a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying. Now. The dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. One of the angels said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, what's that? That's Mount Zion, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And context talks about jeweled walls and golden streets and pearly gates. It's all there in Revelation 21. The city, brethren, consists of the people of God, the bride of Christ, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, verse 23. You know that the word church in the Greek here means the called out ones. Called out of what? Called out for what? Well, God calling out a people from the world for himself. Paul describes himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, Romans 1, verse 1. But then he goes on to describe the common ordinary citizen in God's family, verse 6. You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. What a wonderful phrase called to belong, called to belong. Such a calling from God is not accidental nor dependent upon the reception of sinners. Romans 8, 29, for those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified or saved. And those he justified, he also glorified or will glorify And that is what arrives at Mount Zion, is all about. By the predestination of God, we see that none of this was accidental. But even in our text, we have indication of forethought and determination of this end in the statement, whose names are written in heaven. Moses, in his day, was ordered by God to register or enroll let me read it for you. All the firstborn males of the people of Israel. Numbers 3, verse 14 following. That's how you get the book, Numbers. That's, that's why it's called Numbers in our Bible, because Moses was numbering the people. But with Jesus, the one greater than Moses, there's an enrollment in heaven of all who are destined to be saved and all who are. And the final tally is there. There will be no discrepancy between that proposed figure and the actual count. Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. John 6, verse 39. The registry of the redeemed was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 17, verse 8, before the creation Of the world. world. Jesus told his disciples, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10 verse 20. Paul described his fellow workers in the gospel as those whose names are in the book of life. Philippians 4 verse 3. This is what Mount Zion is all about. There's no speculation here. There's no guesswork. There's no degree of uncertainty concerning the number of the saved or the final goal. Romans 11.29 tells us that God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Which is Paul's way of telling us that once God is determined to do something, he doesn't change his mind. Why should he? His mind is perfect. His decisions are without regret. And Christ will lose none of the people for whom he died. Not one. Not one. So, in coming to Mount Zion, we come to the called out assembly of the firstborn, those set apart to God, whose home ground is heaven itself. Fourthly, Mount Zion brings us to God, the judge of all men. Verse 23 say, well, what's comforting about that? The Greek construction here words this just a little bit differently. You've come to the judge, the God of all men. In this latter construct, the idea is that the judge before whom we must all stand one day is none other than the God of all men. Which means that he alone is God and there is no other God. God's exclusive right to receive thanks and worship from all men is based on the fact that He is the creator and sustainer of all men. Creatures owe their allegiance to their Creator. And when the actions of a creature do not comply with the wishes of the Creator, they must answer to that Creator. This is, in fact, the final nightmare of Mount Sinai. Both destinations, be it Mount Sinai or Mount Zion, end with God. But what awaits people who refuse to acknowledge their sin and to repent and to seek forgiveness in Christ is all the judgment and the condemnation, the fire, the smoke, the terror which the broken law can and must dish out. At Mount Zion is the God who is judged too. Only the difference here is that because of his shed blood of Christ, on behalf of his people's sins, there's no longer any personal wickedness left in the believer unjudged. Isaiah tells us of Christ, We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds, we are healed. What a wonderful text. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and following. It is incumbent upon a judge to administer justice, and so with God. Justice dictates that since He punished our sins already by sentencing Christ to death and hell as our substitute, He cannot punish us for the same sins on top of what Jesus went through. This is why this statement on the coming to the judge the god of all men is a comfort to believers. What for the people who end up at Mount Sinai is a throne of judgment. For us who end up at Mount Zion it is a throne of grace. Wherein forgiveness and pardon comes. From the judge. Fifthly. We come to the spirits of righteous men. Made perfect. Verse 23. Heaven. Wherever else it is. Is the habitation of the spirits of righteous men. Who have been made perfect. Who have been made perfect. Get this. They weren't perfect. To begin with. And the only righteousness which they had was the kind of self-righteousness which so characterized the Pharisees of Jesus' day. But Jesus forgave these people their sin and he granted them a new heart for the things of God. That's you and me. The writer here speaks of the spirits of such people because resurrection day has not yet come. But when a believer dies, he is instantly Away from the body, at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 No purgatory, no intermediate state of waiting, no penance to do, no soul sleep in a cold grave. No, the spirits of the righteous are with God right now and they include the saints of the Old Testament, Hebrews 11, and those who were near and dear to us and have died in the Lord in the New Testament. In reunion with those who we loved as one of the anticipated joys of coming to Mount Zion. And then finally, and most glorious of all, in coming to Mount Zion, the writer says, we come to Jesus. Here it is. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The covenant which Christ administers is a better covenant. Chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 22. Superior to the covenant law administered by Moses because it's founded upon better promises. Chapter 8, verse 6. Secured by better sacrifices. Chapter 9, verse 23. Which introduces a better hope by which we draw near to God. Chapter 7, verse 19. Better, 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 better. Better, better. Yeah, amen. And Now the writer of Hebrews tells us that the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, the younger son of Adam and Eve, was more righteous than his older brother Cain, wasn't he? But Cain, in a jealous rage, slew his brother in secret and buried him in the ground. But God saw it. Then he said to Cain, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Genesis 4, verse 10. And as a result, Cain was cursed. Abel was the first human blood shed by man, and it was his own brother who took his life. In the death of Christ, however, Jesus out of unselfish love, willingly shed his blood for those enemies of God whom he considered brothers. Chapter 2, verse 11, verse 14. Abel's blood, wickedly shed, cried out from the grave for justice and retribution upon his murderer. But the blood of Jesus cries out from the grave for mercy and forgiveness for those whose sins required the forfeiture of life's blood blood of Jesus speaks of acceptance instead of rejection. It speaks of blessing instead of cursing. What a glorious end is Mount Zion. the Destination of the people of God. We have in the new covenant that which Mount Sinai makes Mount Sinai pale by comparison. What are they? A heavenly city. A rejoicing multitude of angels a called-out people of God whose names and destinies have been registered since before creation, a judge who in equity may not punish us personally for sins that he's already punished for us in his Son, a holy gathering of righteous men made perfect, a Savior who mediates a new and better covenant based on better promises and a better sacrifice with a better hope and a better word, Than the old covenant ever, ever had. No wonder the writer says to us in this chapter. That we should be thankful. Be thankful. We're so blessed. So very, very blessed. So when I think of Thanksgiving. And we sit around the bountiful table. And I am thankful for America and bountiful tables. I think of the bread of heaven. I think of the living water. I think of God calling us to Mount Zion and making us part of the family of God. And no, no blessing of earth can match that. Lord, bless to our hearts this truth of your word. The comparison between the Old Covenant originated at Mount Sinai and the New Covenant, Mount Zion. Oh, Lord. There's hardly any comparison at all except to say they were covenants. But you covenanted with your people before we were even a people, before we were even a person, when we were just a thought in the mind of God. You registered us by name in the book of life. I pray for each of us here this morning that know you, let us be thankful. We have our aches and pains. We have our trials. We have those things which bring us grief and sorrow into our lives. But let us be thankful. Whatever those things are, by comparison, they're nothing to the glory of Mount Zion, to the glory of being part of the family of God. For those here that do not know Christ, they're under the indictment of Mount Sinai. The law is their judge and their ruler. And that's not a good place to be because the law must punish sin. But if they will come by your grace and by your spirit to Mount Zion, Lord, draw them to Mount Zion. The invitation is come. We have come to Mount Zion. Yes, and all these other things that we studied this morning have taken place because of our relationship through Christ. There's only one Savior, and it isn't us. The law says that we will not be able to save ourselves. But we come to Mount Zion, and the blood of Christ speaks of reconciliation, not judgment. It speaks a better word, in the blood of Abel. Thank you, dear Christ. We exalt in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name.